The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, thanks for having me. I knew, uh, I guess it was about 10 years ago I was here and I spoke, and uh, I remember uh, talking, I don't know who I decided with on the topic, and I came in, I spoke on the topic of debt. What? And just like it's silent right now, it was dead. Right, so I was hoping that um, I could talk to someone, and I realized as I walked out, I'm speaking to college students on debt. The very fact that they're here is the result of debt. So um, anyway, we're going to put that it was the result of God's movement in your life. So anyway, but hey, today I want, I'm not going to do debt. I want to talk about some life lessons, some of life's hardest lessons from the life of Joseph, and. Uh, the life of Joseph, Joseph, as in Genesis chapter 37 through 50, uh, is probably one of those stories in Scripture that, for me, I go back to repeatedly. I love uh, something that you can look at in Scripture that probably, and it's probably already have been done, can be put into some TV miniseries, and that it's totally orchestrated and crafted by God, and yes, it involves an intense amount of dysfunction. And I want to look at a little bit of that, but I want it to be an encouragement to you because I realize, just like Joseph being a young person, some of you coming right in here from your parents' homes or uh, just entering college as your first kind of independent life experience, that you come as a person, maybe not with a lot of life experience, but there's already been a lot that's happened to you that you could probably write about and talk about and instruct about. Joseph had a lot happen to him when he was a young man. So I'm going to look at this. Let's just pray for a moment and just ask God's blessing for these few moments. Lord, thanks for having us here. Thanks for your presence. Thank you for giving us scripture to teach us. I pray that our minds and hearts would be opened and that we would be listening for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look in Genesis chapter 37 and you know anything about Joseph's life, and I'm going to assume you know something about it, he was part of a pretty influential family that God had plans for. He understood the promises of the past. His dad, Jacob, talked about those promises, and those promises were pretty extensive to change the world. So when you look at a family that has this much influence, you might bring an assumption that they have a lot of health to their family. They have a lot going on that was going to promote God's plan for their life and the ability for them to move forward, and God used them. What we know right off the bat in the story of Joseph and we understand from Scripture is that the first thing I want you to understand about this and the context of it is that dysfunctional families do not hold back God. Now, here's the thing. If I asked you to raise your hand and say, how many of you came from dysfunctional... Don't do this, by the way. If I asked you, how many come from dysfunctional families, you would raise your hand and maybe we'd get 70%, I don't know, 60%, maybe less, maybe more, whatever that's going to be in a room like this, and then the rest of you we would call liars. Because we understand if we look at the pages of Scripture that dysfunction in the family unit is just part of everything we see, even up to this point. We look at Adam and Eve. We look at Noah. We look at Abraham. We look at Lot. We look at Isaac. Uh, we go beyond that. We look at King David. And yes, we could even look at the family in which Jesus was raised and understand that there are so many hindrances and barriers in living out God's plan for my life that I could point back and blame so much of what's happening to me now 
or look in a hopeless way at the future and determine this is part of all the dysfunction that occurred in my family. Joseph was a guy who was favored by his dad. There was favoritism in the family. His brothers hated it. It says in chapter 37 that they plotted to kill him. They said, here comes the dreamer. They said, come on now, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. There was intense hate for this young man. Some of this may have been some self-inflicted pride that Joseph had shown before his brothers that caused all kinds of issues among them. But certainly nobody deserves to be thrown into a pit and left for dead. Reuben steps up and says, hey, don't do this, don't do this, don't kill him, don't do this. And there's some grace entering into the story in which there always is in every story that you and I are kind of living out. There's grace that's present. They dropped him in this pit. And I'll bet as Joseph was sitting in there, he probably had moments in which he could look back and say, come on, God, really? I have expectations, I have dreams. I have all the gifts and abilities that maybe I've identified that maybe has been over-exaggerated by my dad. Why am I sitting in a pit right now? Why am I in this condition? Maybe in his own mind, maybe the battle and the sorrow and the anguish was greater than what was the circumstances around him. Maybe just sitting in a pit was indicative of what his mind rehearsed every day. I don't know where his greatest battle laid, but I just know that Joseph had every reason to look at his life and say, the dysfunction of my family holds me back. Frankly, every one of us can say that too. We can say, wow, I wish that I had had this jump start, or I wish I had had that family, or I wish that I had had that set of conditions for me as I moved along. God places us exactly in positions of disappointment and anguish in order for us to realize that he is the only one that is going to launch us forward into the opportunities that he has for us. At the point of being in those opportunities, we have to decide, am I going to use these for God's purposes, or are they going to remain here for the very reason in which I'm going to say, you know what, I'm not going forward. See, some of us have to acknowledge that what our greatest task is at this point, at the age that you're at, is to fairly assess and identify the family that God placed us in and to be able to say, Lord, here's the wonderful things you gave me. Even some of them that are born out of anguish and pain, I'm going to use for good because I've got to look at God and only God because he's the only one that's going to launch me and has the plan for my life. Some of that is, and I've put some terms down, is I need to repent of other people's sin. I'm not asking you to harp on it. I'm not asking you to rehearse it. I'm not asking you to live in those moments. I'm not asking you to think about that sibling that mistreated you. I'm not asking you to think about the worst of your parents. I'm asking you to say, hey, we live in a broken world. The pain I have and I walk in with and the things that I feel... I need to kind of repent of those, even though that I was not the source of that sin. Repenting of that means I can't focus on it. I'm going to turn from it and look at God and move forward. And by the way, that goes a long way to forgiving someone else. Joseph lived in that world. I'm not exactly sure what on in his mind. 
But there was something that was embedded deep in him that gave him the ability to look beyond individual circumstance and to say, all right, now I'm going to be launched into this place. A caravan came along and picked him up. Ishmaelites from Gilead. I mean, it's not the place that God, he thought God would have him. In fact, it didn't even line up with the history if he understood it and the promises given to Abraham. Why was that going to happen? Of course, God always knows the big picture. But he probably had to look back and say, you know, my family was my greatest source of love and joy, but it's also now producing the greatest source of my pain for me. What am I going to do with that? For him, there would be a point at the end of the story, and you know some of that, that he would have to choose to break generational sin and say, I'm not going to do to them what they did to me. He played around a little bit. If you read the story, he played around a little bit, and he kind of played on their emotions and their fears. But ultimately, he came to that point where he decided to obey God. I want you to remember this. Dysfunctional families do not hold you back. They do not hold you back because God will launch you forward. But he wants you to deal with what's ever going on in your heart and mind. And I know students all the time are dealing with that. And it may be 10 years from now. It may be 20 years from now. But the rule still stands. God's not holding you back. And he can work through all of that. Second thing in this story, launching from Genesis 37, goes into two chapters later. And I want you to hear this because this is significantly profound. You've probably never heard this before. Life is unfair. Somehow, I expected life to be really fair. I expected people to be fair. I don't know that what Joseph was in his mind thinking that, but I know that Joseph was a dreamer. He was a dreamer. He had expectations. Dreamers can see something and they can picture something. And while it may be something that you and I may balk at and go, man, that's, that's just a wild expectation. For, for Joseph, he looked at it and he said, this is what I see. I mean, is God giving me this picture? It's, you know, can I dream? Can I tell you something, dream. I love when people stand up and they, they kind of share something that, that originated with them, two songs. And I'm going to bore out of a dream to say, I'd love to write a song someday. Right? That's wonderful. Don't ever be held back from those things. Dream. Have expectations. Talk to God about those things. Work hard. But Joseph, in going through that first circumstance, had to determine, okay, life is unfair. This isn't fair at all. But God is always fair because you got to go back to the source of truth and understanding about the character of God. In chapter 39, Joseph is given this absolute wonderful opportunity to live in the house of his Egyptian master. His master sees all of his great possibilities. Joseph was at a point in which he probably said, I, I can either live in the self-pity of what's going on in my life and my mind and heart, or I can be determined to take this situation in some way, even the moments, maybe there was a lot of them, moments that keep telling me I'm worthless and I can't offer anything, to say, I'm not going to focus on circumstantial change. I'm going to just shine exactly where I am. He found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From time to time, he'd put him in charge of his household and all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Amazing. God's blessing someone that's not even favored by God comes from Israel, and he says, Joseph, because 
you're choosing to break generational sin, to live in the awareness of the unfairness of this world and say, but I can do something now where I'm at. You're going to bless me, God. So Potiphar left everything in Joseph's care. Eventually, you know some of this story. Joseph being a good-looking guy, being a guy who was getting it all done, was impressive, maybe envied by others. Potiphar's wife decides he's a target, and he becomes a target. Joseph rebuffs Potiphar's wife, and she gets angry. And at that point, you want to say, wow, look at this. He ran from sin. God needs to honor him and bless him. What does God do? He allows for the false accusation to originally, to uh, ultimately put him in prison. And now Joseph's got to be sitting there saying, wait a minute, I thought doing the right thing would guarantee the best result in my life. Isn't that what we typically think? I do the right thing, the best result happens. The reason why we call life unfair is because we understand that we can do the right thing and that will not guarantee the best result. Joseph lived in that situation, and he's put in prison. He's falsely accused. He goes from the golden child to now a prisoner, and he's got to be dealing with all of the past again, saying, somehow I've got to blame mom and dad. Somehow I'm going to have to blame my brother. Somehow I'm going to have to blame this person. Man, he could have legitimately blamed a lot of people. He really could have. And I am not going to discount the fact that Joseph probably sat in that prison cell and just went back and forth in his mind about all that he might have done wrong, but also a lot of self-pity that could have gone on. Can I tell you, life is unfair. God is always fair. He's always fair. Again, if I want to go back to the large, big picture of who God is and what he's established among us and what he's done through Jesus Christ, I realize that there is more grace, there's more mercy, there's more forgiveness, there is more of all that is life transforming from God that will outweigh any unfairness you will ever experience. And that sometimes when I sit even in my own pride or think I deserve the next thing, or I've been passed up for that thing, or I really need another set of circumstances in order to lift me up, I've got to look back into some lives that have gone through, that are recorded for me, that have just gone through just horrible, horrible circumstances. And somehow, when I read their story, I'm inspired to believe, wow, how did they come through this? Maybe it's an expectation and preparation for me to know something might be down the road for me. Every life is going to have its journey of ups and downs. You are going to be placed in difficult situations. You're going to have some incredible blessings. You're going to have some incredible opportunities. But you're going to look in some of those and you can say, man, God is so good. The challenge is, can I say God is good when things aren't looking good? God is always fair. Literally, he's just. He's unbiased and honest in his assessment. He's gracious in what he gives us. And he does. He wants the best for us. I cringe sometimes when we recite Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans you have for me, not for disaster. And, you know, it's hopeful and all that. And I go, all right, I understand that. But, Lord, I have many, many stories of people that obeyed and just it didn't turn out real good for them. So why is that? The big picture is God looks at the human race and he says, 
I am going to do unbelievable things in and through you. My plan is big. Look at the big picture. See, Tozer put it this way. What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. That it's really going to come down to how I handle each situation is what I believe about God. Life is unfair. God is always fair. Number three, when disappointment is great, divine opportunities are greater. Joseph moves along. Sometime later, he's in prison, and the cupbearer and the baker now have offended uh, the Egyptian king. And I don't know what exactly they did, but, you know, they, they offended him, right? They offended the king. Joseph is now put in prison with them, and Pharaoh is angry at them, and now they're coming in, and God is going to use Joseph in their life. Again, it was the picture of, God, I'm here in a place of disappointment. I want to be there. How do I function in this and do what you want me to do? And maybe you've heard those stories over and over of people placed in prison or falsely accused or put in a position, even if it's of their own doing, in which they look like life has been on hold and somehow they make some great opportunity out of it. It's one of those key, key things about them that we go, what is it that makes somebody take the most horrible circumstance of life and seem to accomplish so much in it? Can I tell you, I envy that because... Do you know what I do in the midst of disappointment? I kind of ask for the disappointment to be removed. Lord, please remove it. Please remove it. Come on, take the pain. I can't do anything for you until I get out of this. Joseph took the opportunity of being in prison. His picture of who God is is a fair, trustworthy, just God. Processing all that was behind him to decide that there's always divine opportunities in every situation. In every situation. He begins to interpret dreams. He begins to just do the work and using the gifts that God had given him. Can I tell you, there is no context in which your spiritual gifts, whatever you may have identified, whatever God has placed, there's no context in which they cannot be used. You may find a job someday that you say, this is not a fit for me. This is not the place. But can I tell you, God will take even the briefest of moments for you to understand that God can use you in that situation and inspire you and use the gifts and abilities God has given you. Don't try to run from the circumstances. Try to embrace the opportunity and ask God to show it to you. Because for Joseph, it was so key that he had to know hey, maybe the only evidence of God being here with me is the fact that he gave me this gift and now he's letting me use it among the only two people I have connection with. So Joseph does that. He interprets dreams. He tells them what's going on. He tells them about his dreams. He kind of serves the people around him in the midst of a sad situation. God kind of releases him to that, gives him favor again. He was a model inmate in a place of disappointment, but saw the greatest of opportunities. I don't know what college experience is for you, but there may be disappointments in your college experience. Use them for opportunities. Even if it's just writing down in an inventory type of way, what is it, God, that you have been doing in this situation that has strengthened me, 
toughened me, that has brought me to a place of seeing the divine opportunities and to be able to see you, God, because it's seeing God in everything in a broken world and understanding even in my brokenness, God is working. I could talk so much more about this, but I need to move on to point four. Patience pays off. Learn the art of delayed gratification. Patience pays off. I'm really doing a quick synopsis here of Joseph's life, but over the span of years in which he was there, he had to be patient. He had to be patient. Can I tell you, patience is not my gift. Um, I'm 52. I get in a car, and it's probably the worst example of impatience that you will see. My wife, when she's in the car with me, will still sing a song that I, I kind of just zone it out now because I know that it's very convicting. Be patient, be patient. She sings this song, and the girls would be in the car, and I think when they were younger, she was like, don't look at daddy right now. <laughs> it's not a good example, right? That's why I didn't teach them to drive. My wife did. Patience pays off. It does. But there's something about patience that not only pays off and may, may bring safety because impatience brings a lot of risk, undue risk to our lives. There was one point in which Joseph's life, at the end of the story, he comes to this place where, again, he's in charge of the whole land and he's given this opportunity to, to again, rise up. And he's dressed in fine linen's robes, and he's doing all this, and he's, he's a second in command, and he must look and say, man, look at this. How did I get to this point again? It's the ups and downs of life. Just understand, you're going to have a lot of down times. You're going to have a lot of up. However other people define them, it doesn't matter. But however God defines it is the most important. Eventually, he has to confront his family do you see how the story comes back full circle? Because I don't want to miss, yes, the historical position in which Israel was in and the fact that God was going to preserve Israel in the midst of famine, in the land of Egypt, and the irony and all of that. But I also want to look at the individual story and the dynamic that took place. That a brother being cast out from a dysfunctional family in pain and suffering and anguish in the most defining moment of his life had an opportunity to say, I forgive you. Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. When they were brought back, after he played a little bit of, yes, some mind games with them, you intended harm to me, but God intended good to accomplish what is now being done. Again, it's a distinction between the small picture and the big picture. It's a distinction between God is doing something greater, even though I don't see it. I must acknowledge it and trust him. And be reassured that he is working, not just on your behalf, he is working on the behalf of so many other people and that your life matters to him. It's significant. It's significant. And when we understand that significance from God's perspective, we will not minimize the small things. We will actually raise them up to an appropriate place in which I need to honor him and I need to honor him in those small, challenging situations, those small, really good situations. I need to honor him in the midst of places of disappointment, and that's really going to be tough. But you can express and pour your heart out to God in the midst of those. But I think what Joseph was able to do as he sat and focused on other prisoners, as he didn't fight back on false accusations in so many ways that he could, he didn't get into self-pity, is that 
patience of the Lord came over him, and he said, you know what? God is going to make this right. For some, the right, the freedom, may be expressed only in eternity. But God is going to make this right. Joseph ends, helping, ends up helping his brothers. And what could have been squelched and squashed in his life, the love for his family, his younger brother in particular, and all that was going on, it, it didn't. Satan wants that to grow. He wants that bitterness, resentment to grow. But I think as part of it, this patience paid off that if he had not waited for God, if he was trying to escape things, he would have maybe gotten some short-term temporary freedom, but that delayed gratification and waiting for God and being faithful in what God gives you now paid off into something great. See, we live in a world where we're bombarded with many opportunities of instant gratification. Technology has just pushed it forward. Listen, I don't even know what it's like to have, for you guys to grow up in the midst of this technology. I graduated here in 1988. The internet didn't exist. I had to actually pick up a book to study, you know, and uh, I had to go to a library, and I don't even know what that's like to get instant information with that, just a push of a simple button. We can have instantly what we want. Part of being faithful is being patient. Part of being faithful is understand the ways in which God works is that it's not instant. It's time in combination with faithfulness, in combination with Trust in combination with understanding that there's a bigger picture. And we have to understand that the art of delayed gratification, it's a process of denying yourself the temporary freedom, the immediate pleasure that even sin can give, and to enjoy a greater joy and genuine trust in God and the presence of God because that will never be pulled away from you. Because the only instant gratification we get that's ongoing that I never have to push a button for is the presence of God. So today, I want to ask you where you are. Place of disappointment. Maybe you're in the bottom. Maybe you're in the pit. Maybe you're at the top. Maybe you're like, hey, I'm at the top of things right now. Man, things are great, you know. Wherever it's at, the principles of understanding that life can be so difficult for us but can provide us with so much pleasure is the things that can take us off the track from understanding the one who controls it all and is sovereign is ultimately the one that will decide what each day looks like. I just have to cooperate with him. And then I have to not devalue any situation that God gives me. I want to pray blessing on you today. I just want to pray for you as we close. I think I'm closing it, right? And as we close, I just want you to stand. And I just, I know there's always people in the room that are going through real difficulty Everybody stand up. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to embarrass you. I just want to ask God's blessing on you. Lord, I forget a lot about what it's like to be a college student. It's been a lot of years. And I know that this is a different world than when I lived here, and even a different world than just a few years ago than when my daughters were in college. I pray for these precious students that they would know that you love them and that disappointment, success, all of it is within your realm of sovereignty and that you are for everyone here, that you love them and that no matter what has come upon them, no matter what they've failed in, no matter what sin they are participating in, that at this moment through obedience, through confession and repentance, they can come to you and they can trust you. Lord, I pray blessing on them. I just ask that you would work
in their lives, in their hearts, that amidst the anguish, you would give them a picture that's bigger, greater, more hopeful, because you want to use them. Thank you for these students at Karen and for this school that continues to teach the word of God and send people out ready in whatever field they're going to go to be an example and a witness for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.